Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita, and this week it's all about political TV here on Nerdette. We're going to talk a little later in the show with Barbara Hall. She's the showrunner of the CBS show Madam Secretary. And we discuss the staying power of the West Wing with two crazy dudes who are recapping a 17-year-old TV show. But first, let's talk about the psychology behind this thing that many of us nerdy humans do. Mm-hmm. Rewatch our favorite TV shows, movies, reread books, music over and over and over again. Derek, can you introduce yourself? Sure. I am Derek Thompson. I'm a senior editor at The Atlantic magazine, where I write about economics and uh, work in the U.S. and abroad, and also about the entertainment business and the sort of the psychology of entertainment and audiences. Derek, you wrote a really great article called On Repeat, Why People Watch Movies and Shows Over and Over. Trisha and I are obviously both very guilty of this, but for super different shows. For me, it's Arrested Development. And yeah, Derek, you mentioned another one in this article that I feel like we should probably just get out in the open, too. Let's just get it all off our chest. Yeah, I adore Dumb and Dumber. (laughs) Uh, I watch it every single time. I happen to sort of skip on by it on TBS or TNT or whatever channel it happens to be on. When I was a kid, I'd say I probably watched it 100 times between the age of, I don't know, 10 and 15. Wow, that's insane. So why do we do this? There was an interesting study that looked at all the various reasons why it might be enjoyable to listen to the same songs over and over again or watch the same shows. And the simplest reason is that you just really like the dang thing. And I certainly find that like when Seinfeld is on and I'm sort of you know making dinner for myself at home and I turn on the television and Seinfeld is on, I watch it not for any deep reason, just because I, I find it really funny. And I'm, I laugh at the same jokes over and over again. It's like an old friend who tells the same five jokes, but they're great five jokes. Uh, <laughs> so I think there's a simple reason. Another reason, though, is a nostalgic reason. The word nostalgia, I thought this was a a sort of telling case of um, etymology. I loved that you explored the etymology of this term, by the way. As a word nerd, I was like, oh, Derek, this is beautiful. (laughs) Good. So nostalgia comes from the Greek words uh, nostos, homecoming, and algos, pain. Uh, It's homecoming pain. It's a homecoming sickness. And it was coined in the 17th century to uh, describe a disease among Swiss mercenaries fighting abroad. The feeling was that uh, they missed the gorgeous mountains and grassy knolls of Switzerland, and so nostalgia uh, meant that they were sick for home. And this psychologist that I read talked about how, you know, one of the beautiful things about repeating pop culture experiences is, is that they help us remember the past. They help us to sort of re-dredge our past experiences so that when, for example, I'm watching Dumb and Dumber, I'm also sort of watching myself in watching Dumb and Dumber by remembering the last time that I watched it was was with a friend or, you know, with an ex-girlfriend or... Um, a simpler time. A simpler time, right, exactly. Hey, 
Want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? Guys! 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 Fellas, you think we could listen to the radio or something? Radio? <laughs> Who needs the radio? Ready, Harry? <laughs> Mock! Yeah! Ing! Yeah! So, Derek, when was the last time you watched Dumb and Dumber? Oh, God. Uh, probably four <laughs> months ago I caught some of it. I, <laughs> see, I, I, can't, I can't even think about it without laughing. <laughs> and even when I'm not watching it, I am watching it. It's, it's playing through my head. It's like, you know, microwaves in the air. Like, sometimes I won't even be thinking about it, and it'll just, you know, enter one ear and pass through the other. Some of these, <laughs> some of these classic lines. Well, Derek Thompson, thank you so much for joining us on Nerdette. It's my pleasure. Thank you. CJ, on your tombstone, it's going to read post hoc ergo proctor hoc. Okay, but none of my visitors are going to be able to understand my tombstone. 27 lawyers in the room. Anybody know post hoc ergo proctor hoc? Josh? Uh, uh, post, after, after hoc, ergo, therefore, after hoc, therefore, something else hoc. Thank you. Next. Well, if I got more credit on the 443. Thing. Leo? After it, therefore, because of it. After it, therefore, because of it. It means one thing follows the other, therefore, it was caused by the other. But it's not always true. In fact, it's hardly ever true. We did not lose Texas because of the hat joke. Do you know when we lost Texas? When you learned to speak Latin. Go figure. What else? Ah, that's the stuff. That's the (laughs) stuff right there. I think our astute listeners already know, Tricia, that your West Wing is like my arrest and development. You watch it as background noise. It's your happy place. It's something that we can't get enough of. For me, it's the West Wing. It has been for a very long time. I used to have the DVDs. Now I just keep it in a heavy rotation on Netflix. And so I was thrilled to talk to Josh Molina and Rishi Hirway, who are doing something that I do all the time, but they're doing a podcast about it, which is rewatch the West Wing from start to finish. The West Wing first came out in 1999, which, as we well know, was before the magic of recap podcasts. <laughs> so these two guys have committed to recapping every single episode of The West Wing, which I have to say is pretty commendable. I'm especially excited to hear these two co-hosts do the recaps because Josh Molina, who played Will Bailey on The West Wing, is also a favorite of mine on Scandal, where he plays Attorney General David Rosen. And Rishikesh Hirway is the host of a popular podcast called Song Exploder that really nerds out about music. So it makes sense to me that he's ready to pull apart a TV show. You guys, in these episodes, you're talking about the arc of each West Wing episode. You're also talking about themes in the show's context. You're doing some deep dive trivia, which we'll talk about more in a bit. But first, whose idea was this? He doesn't want to say it, but it was Rishi's. <laughs> yeah, in September, I guess, of last year, I wrote to Josh and said, hey, let's do this thing. So you guys talked about your credentials in the first episode, but can you tell us a little bit about what qualifies each of you to be doing such a thing? This is like a serious endeavor. Rishi is really the qualified wing nut. <laughs> I was involved, uh, of course, in the show. I joined midway. Someone marked the slow decline of the show uh, <laughs> by my by my entry. You weren't going to say it, man. Um, I'm glad you did. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That's uh, I'm. Let's let's keep it a hundred here. Um, <laughs> so I was on the show starting midway, although I had been a fan of it already, and I in fact really really weaseled my way onto it. I mean, I, I wanted I wanted to come on board, and I worked Aaron mercilessly. So I was already a fan of the show, but I haven't rewatched. 
until now for the purpose of this podcast. I'm thoroughly enjoying that. So my credentials as a uh, deep dive wingnut are not impressive. Rishi's the wingnut. I have some inside information, I guess, on the people involved and ultimately working with them. But I'm on my first rewatch of the show. You also seem pretty good at the Googles. I'm very good at, yes, attempting to seem smart by having Googled what I need to Google, (laughs) if that's what you're saying. Yes, yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm good at, as we're chatting, I'm good at vamping while I'm looking. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. You guys talked about this in the pilot too, but we're talking about more than 150 episodes. Are you sure you're ready to commit to this? I'm, I guess so. I mean, I, make a West Wing reference, we threw our hats over the wall and now we have no choice but to climb over and get them. Although at the same time, I'll add, there's a little bit of hubris involved, which is that we're we're only going to get to, (laughs) we're only going to get through seven seasons of this if people continue to listen. (laughs) We won't, we will not do it in the woods with no one listening. So (laughs) I'm fully committed and I should say that I'm hopeful we'll get through all seven because people will stay with us. Yeah, I feel like people are going to hold you to it. I don't even think it's a matter of like people staying with you. I think people are going to be demanding this from you. <laughs> for years. I hope you're right. Yeah, we're in. We're down for the long haul. One thing I think is really interesting, especially, Josh, given your role on Scandal now, to look at West Wing sort of in the the genre of like DC political shows Obviously, you've got your West Wing and then there are things like Scandal and maybe on the darker end, there's House of Cards and then, you know, Veep, which is sort of on the like clumsier side. Which one are each of your favorites in that genre? Well, I, I have to answer Scandal (laughs) (laughs) as I am currently employed at Scandal. One, it gives me health insurance and also uh, a little tip of the cap to Scandal, at least as compared with the West Wing. On Scandal, the sex happens in front of the camera. (laughs) In the West Wing, if there is any sex, it certainly happens far off camera. (laughs) What about for you, Rishi? I I kind of love all of them. I love the West Wing. I watched every episode of Veep so far and House of Cards and The Thick of It. Watched the entire series of that. Mm. And of course, Scandal. In one hour, you will issue a press release saying former Vice President Andrew Nichols is dead. That means you will have one hour to find Lillian Forrester and convince her that there is no story, that there never was a story, just the distorted machinations of a sad individual suffering from a few lingering repercussions of his stroke. Never cross me again. I guess there are a few political ones that I have missed, but I feel like I got the big ones in. Okay, so this is probably the nerdiest I'm going to get within this conversation, but can we please talk a little bit about W.G. Snuffy Walden? Sure. It was actually him before Sorkin for me that I realized was the through line of a lot of shows that made me just constantly want to both weep and jump up onto something with excitement and like experiencing the glory of what is the imperfection of humanity. Like uh, 30-something? Exactly, yes. And actually Studio 60 and Friday Night Lights. I mean, there are a lot of shows that he has really captured. I don't know, Rishi, I'm especially curious from your point of view as a composer, like he is on to something, right? Yeah, I love the music in the West Wing and I also get frustrated with it sometimes. I mean, he's very good at at pulling at your heartstrings and sometimes I'm, I'm like, oh, I just, I don't need to be manipulated that hard here. <laughs> And sometimes it feels like it's it's pushing me and pulling me in ways that I want. Sometimes it's really effective. And we talk about that a little bit in the pilot uh-huh. episode of the podcast, too. 
and Josh said, you know, he likes to be uh, told how to feel by the music. Me, me I don't know, because I'm a musician, I'm, I'm, I want it to be, um, sometimes I'm like, you know, I got this. You, you don't need to nudge me quite so hard. I understand. But then what would bring out the tears, you know? Exactly. I need to be told. Well, I need to. This is how I get through the day altogether. Someone has to tell me at every moment what to think, feel, and do. Um, so yeah, I like the music to tell me. Oh, this is a funny little scene. Something cute's gonna happen, <laughs> or you should be sad now. This is this is high stakes, and something something bad is happening. So <laughs> I'm with you. The fully tapered bolster allows for sharpening the entire edge of the blade. It says PR. I thought I knew them all, but I don't recognize the manufacturer. These were made for my family by a Boston silversmith named Paul Revere. Mr. President? I'm proud of you, Charlie. I should say my only qualms with that are the moments where it's like when it veers on jingoistic. I think all the other times when the music is really um, scoring an emotional beat, I really love it. It may also be that as an actor, I like the extra help. Sure. Sometimes I'll sometimes I'll give a subpar performance, but you layer in that music and like, hey, uh, that looks pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> it's not subpar, it's just subtle. It's subtle. That's there what you it go. is. Let's while we're sort of talking about the musicality of the show, let's talk about the Sorkin dialogue as a form almost of music in and of itself. And I wonder, Josh, first for you, you know, you've been you've been reading those words in that perfect way for a long time, but it's not something that every actor I think could do and is it that difficult is that why they're sort of the Sorkin players the recurring folks who he has to pull back into his work again and again is it sort of a a special skill on a resume to be able to pull off Sorkin dialogue Uh, well I would say for me as an actor I find it easier than than dialogue that is less good for me it's a lot harder I've been lucky to speak some great dialogue in my career and I've certainly been involved in things of lesser quality and for me it's a lot harder when you're trying to raise the stakes and try to be a little bit better than the dialogue when the dialogue is that good and that crisp um, I feel like you just have to get out of the way of it you don't have to you don't have to layer in so much you just have to put it out there so I find Aaron stuff actually really easy to put over and I don't know maybe it's because I was a friend of his prior to being an you know a colleague or or uh, an employee of his and so I think I may have been used to his cadences from the many hours we spent across the poker table with each other he himself is hyper articulate super smart sharp guy and so I think I was kind of used to the pace and the way he speaks I love hearing you refer to him as Aaron because I feel like that's what public radio, you know, there's just like the Ira, but I still have to say Aaron Sorkin. And so it's it's funny to be talking to someone who just says Aaron and it's like, oh, of course, you're talking about Aaron. No big deal. I've also had people point out that my New York Jewish accent really comes out when I talk about Aaron. <laughs> people are like, his name is Aaron? Aaron? You know, Trisha and I you did know? actually discuss I did that. an impression of you saying his name earlier today, in fact. We were like, he calls him Rishi, but he also says Aaron, so we're not quite sure. <laughs> it's orange juice and Aaron. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I just can't get out of my own way. I am who I am. I wanted to talk to you both a little bit about what Aaron has uh, occasionally called <laughs> the the sound of intelligence that he puts into his work. That for him, it's often more important that people sound smart than that the audience understands what they're saying. Does that ever bother you or do you love that about the way he writes his dialogue? Well, we talk about that a little bit in 
episode two of the podcast where there's this phenomenon of this thing called the A3 C3. And it's something that is the root of the whole uh, main plot of the episode where the vice presidents made a comment publicly about A3 C3. And it goes throughout the whole episode. We never find out what it is. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I went off mic there for a short second while I turned over a cat toy. And I'm hoping that <laughs> that the first 15 minutes of this interview do not feature the ball and the cat toy being batted around by one of my three cats. Um, so I think we were talking we're talking about musicality, right? And the sound as opposed to the substance and meaning of the dialogue, right? Right. That sometimes, yeah, you're doing a whole monologue to sound smart, but the audience is never going to really know what you were talking about. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, I think that I think Aaron, by his own admission, would admit, yeah, the, the sound of intelligence. And so now there are times when we're going through the show, and I say to Rishi, "So, so does that mean anything?" <laughs> I need Rishi to to confirm for me that A three C three, in fact, it doesn't mean anything. It's one of Aaron's clever ways of staying ahead of the audience, where you're sort of grasping at what little information he's giving you, so that he can stay ahead of you. It's very crafty. There's also the move of talking about an object in extremely technical terms. The jargon, um, yeah. The, yeah, the jargon is is a sort of a quick way into that. It's like, this plane is a uh, L-1011. You know? And I can still flummox it with something I bought at Radio Shack? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, you are good. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Ziegler, a message was just patched up to the cockpit for you. I'm not sure I've got it right. POTUS in a bicycle accident? You got it right. You can't use your phone until we land, sir. We're flying in a Lockheed Eagle Series L-1011. Came off the line 20 months ago. Carries a SIM-5 transponder tracking system. Are you telling me I can still flummox this thing with something I bought at Radio Shack? Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. listening to Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson here with Trisha Bovita, and this week we are talking with Joshua Molina and Rishi K. Shearway. Rishi, one of the things I like about the West Wing is that it makes this really clear statement that you can't have it all. You can have one thing or the other. You can be C.J. <laughs> Craig and be the chief of staff, or you can marry Danny Kincaid, and you can't actually do both at the same time. It's what sort of the, the show shows us in a way that other shows don't acknowledge. That, you know, a, a show like Madam Secretary, which I also enjoy very much, is very much about this idea that you can balance international crisis at work with parenting teenagers. And mm-hmm. I find it refreshing to show a workplace where people are really good at their jobs, but like you said, a little bad at everything else. Yeah, I think it paved the way for a lot of models for other shows. We were talking the other day about how Leslie Nope on Parks and Recreation is kind of a great continuation of this tradition that she's incredible at her government job. She's hyper-efficient, hyper-effective, but then 
terrible in everything outside of her job. Yeah, that couple, the two of them and the way that they work together is, I think, completely inspired by sort of the same idealism as as West Wing. You bring up Leslie Nope, and we've talked a little about C.J. Craig, so let's just talk for a minute, since we are under debt, about the fact that in Sorkin, and I, I wouldn't say this as strongly, but the hyperbolic version of the statement is that, you know, in Sorkin's work, behind every great man, there is a very capable woman. And that even the language that's used to describe the two of them is that the, the men tend to be the geniuses, the socially awkward geniuses, the self-deprecating geniuses, but the women, their most important characteristic in early West Wing especially seems to be that they are capable. They're literally the assistants in most cases, except for CJ. And I just wonder, as you're rewatching, does that feel dated to you? Do you think that it would have to be played differently now? I think it would be played differently now. In the third episode, I feel like CJ, she really puts Sam in his place. And, you know, she tells him that she's the first line of defense. And she's right. It turns out that if she had been included, you know, there's this sort of problematic thing that happens in the second episode of The West Wing where all the men are kind of talking. CJ's left out of it. And I and we talked about that on our show about how that was problematic. And that, you know, maybe Aaron Sorkin deserves some flack for that kind of plot line. But then I feel like if you just stick with it in the third episode, it really turns out that CJ is right. And she has plenty of power in the conversation between her and Sam. They really have like an amazing tete-a-tete. I think the time when that really comes to fruition, too, is much later in the series when uh, Leo first has his heart attack and he's in the hospital. And Josh Lyman and Toby Ziegler especially are trying to figure out who's going to be in charge. And then it slowly becomes clear to the audience what's been clear to Leo the whole time that the only person who's actually ready for the job of chief of staff is CJ. And that moment in that arc of that show was so important to me and so meaningful to me as someone who was watching it and really trying to figure out, did I want to go into politics, all these kinds of things. CJ Craig is like, you know, there's a picture of her on my desk at work. It's like, Part That's of a, awesome. a collage of many different pictures. It's not like a creepy <laughs> shrine or anything, I promise. <laughs> but C.J. Craig is... I would approve of the shrine, too. <laughs> it's kind of shriny. <laughs> it's, I mean, there's a picture of Toby, too, <laughs> that I inherited from one of our other reporters. And They're Will important. Bailey, right? <laughs> but I think that... Wait, you didn't answer her. She said Will <laughs> Bailey, right? <laughs> and then she laughed. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I guess that was the answer. <laughs> I inherited them. I didn't acquire them. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you point out something that I think I misjudged. I got lightly berated after our second podcast came out for gently teasing Rishi, even though I was agreeing with his points. And I think I even said in that podcast that I was screaming at the screen when during the Sam and Laurie storyline. Yeah. I really didn't want her to take his <laughs> jacket and, uh, you know, and continue chatting with him. I think he sort of deserved a uh, see you later kind of thing. But I, I referred to Rishi as Mr. Sensitive, which I meant more as a loving tribute than a rebuke. <laughs> but some people did. And this is part of the fun, I think, of doing this podcast is getting people's reactions. And some people felt that I was shutting Rishi down in his discussion of the female characters having a certain lack of agency, as you put it. And so we're trying to address that more. I think that is worth examining. I think an interesting thing to consider is also whether it's reflective of Aaron's state of mind, Aaron, as I like to call him, or is it also perhaps a reflection of a sort of boys club mentality among the characters he's created. And so I think we'll continue to sort of look at that. I think that's a great point. That actually 
is something that I wondered about more broadly for the shows, like West Wing, like Scandal, do you think they're reflecting more or informing what we think of our real political system? That's a very interesting question. I think it's one that we continue to look at, I think, on sort of issue by issue, but it is sort of a little symbiotic relationship there. And it also, has there been progress in the 16 years between the show first coming out and politics today? And I suspect the answer is yes, if it's not revolutionary, and it's closer to glacial maybe, but I think there is progress and change in that department. And in terms of reflecting what we've, you know, the reflection of one from the other, even just in the short time that we've been doing the podcast, I'm sure Josh has seen this and experienced this a lot more. The number of people who have tweeted at us to say that they entered politics because of the West Wing has been huge. People saying, oh, the show is so important to me. And so now you know that that is part of the DNA of people who are actually involved in the decision-making that's going on in D.C. Yeah, absolutely. I think by positing a Washington, D.C. peopled by folks who went into politics to get positive things accomplished and went in for idealistic reasons, it also encouraged a young group of people to do that very thing and to go into politics believing that they can make a difference. So I think it definitely had a beneficial effect on government and governing. They went in with a Gilbert and Sullivan sense of duty. Yeah, there you go. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, and it's surely to their credit. Nice. That does make me worry about scandal, though, right? <laughs> Why are people going into politics if they're watching scandal is worrisome, Greta. <laughs> That's true. I will say, yeah, the nice thing is that while often, even low these almost two decades later, people tell me that they went studied poli sci or went into government as a result of being inspired by the West Wing. Very few people <laughs> tell me that as a result of scandal. <laughs> so, yeah. I feel like in scandal, most more people are being inspired to join B613. Oh, no. <laughs> That's right. So they can't talk yeah, about Although it. very hard to find an application. <laughs> <laughs> I will say I've been rewatching the show over the last couple of months myself. In part, let's be honest, because I do it at least once a year. All the way through. I appreciate um, that honestly. Actually, is that really true? <laughs> yeah, that's really true. I put it on in that's the background kind of like music. It's my Arrested Development. Yeah, Greta does this with Arrested mm -hmm. Development, but I really do. Because it's on Netflix and that autoplay will just keep rocking, um, <laughs> it'll sort of just be background music. And I find it especially comforting after watching like a presidential primary debate that gets me kind of riled up and I'm watching the cable coverage and I'm just sort of stressed out about real politics. It's nice to go back to having Jed Bartlett be president for a few minutes at the end of your day. I really do do that. And I wonder if that escapism is is what you think keeps the show so relevant to people today, even though it's 17 years later. Some of the storylines feel a little dated. Honestly, most of them don't. But why is the show hanging on? Why is it still so important to crazy people like me? I think that the 24-hour news cycle, which relative to the West Wing is newer, has made politics a bigger part of people's everyday lives. It's not just something that you talk about and hear about on the six o'clock news. And so I think that people are inundated with it so much more and nothing yet, and maybe nothing ever will, has come close to recapturing that sense of idealism that that was in the show, you know, that's the only way for people to to get to live in that ideal moment. And you need it more and more since it's around you more and more. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I do think there are two dated elements, and that is the technology <laughs> yeah. and the apparel. 
And if you can get over those two things, like if you can get over those weird square heels that CJ and Don are wearing, then it's okay. But there is a moment when you're watching the pilot where you're like, whoa, was this, was 1999 really that long ago? And I think you guys said in your pilot podcast that it was a pineapple sized cell phone, I loved which that. I loved. <laughs> I think the women's hairstyles have evolved as well. Yeah, that's very, yeah, I should hope so, man. <laughs> I did like the short hair with the beret over. Oh, yeah, that, that was a problem-solving thing I, I learned, actually, from a tweet from Peter J. Smith. Oh, nice. Yeah, he tweeted that uh, the reason why Moira Kelly wore a beret in that scene is because there'd been some time that had gone by from filming one part of the episode to the uh. other, and her hair had grown longer, <laughs> and she had to cover it up. That, that actually helps a lot, because I was like, man, that beret is so awkward. So I'm glad there was a reason for it. That makes me yeah. feel much but now better. Now I'm going I'm to test your deep dive credentials now. Did okay. Peter James Smith play Ed or Larry? Oh, no. That's one of the Dude, hardest Dude, he Googled ever. it in the show. I know, but then This I... is the true litmus test. Oh, no. Oh, Trisha. Come on, it's 50-50. Take a shot. This is, this is the true shibboleth. Larry. He plays Larry. <laughs> incorrect no okay all right all right well then i get to give you one all right what is the connection that david rosen has to the west wing that isn't you josh that isn't just the fact that you are in both shows as we discussed in episode five of our podcast david rosen is mentioned as the candidate for uh, communications director that passed on the job no! uh, hence allowing hence allowing <laughs> richard schiff as toby ziegler to take the job well Correct? done, sir. You win. Thank you. Oh, my you God. Win. So what we should have done was just a trivia out this entire time. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the few questions I think that I'd actually be able to answer. Rishi's really more the uh, the deep wing nut. The deep wing nut. But I got it. I think you both did great. Joshua, Rishi, thank you so much for ha- joining us on Nerdette. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Trisha, I think we need to just take a moment here to acknowledge the thing that just happened with this Ed or Larry situation. I admitted to you after we taped, and you're making me admit now to everyone that I gave a wrong answer on purpose because I wanted to do a gotcha question next and figured it would be a safer space for getting it wrong (laughs) if I was also wrong. You intentionally pretended to not know, just in case Joshua Molina didn't know the next question. I didn't want to make him feel bad. I mean, I had already told him he wasn't in my desk shrine yet. <laughs> he is now. He is now. Is he now? He I is. haven't I haven't checked, but I will after this. <laughs> next up on our episode all about political TV, I get to sit down with the showrunner of one of my other favorite shows, Madam Secretary. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I'm Greta Johnson. Trisha, the West Wing has been over for almost exactly 10 years, which means we've had a lot of time to mourn and maybe just a lot of time to rewatch the West Wing. Over and over again. <laughs> but I am not just rewatching it. I'm also always on the lookout for shows that will help fill the West Wing shaped hole in my heart. Mm-hmm. And I found one that does a pretty good job of that. It's CBS's Madam Secretary. And you recently talked with the creator of that show, Barbara Hall. You could even call her maybe the Madam Secretary of Madam Secretary? If you insist on doing so, sure. I do. So I have watched every episode of the show, and here's my nerd credential for our conversation. I've actually watched the first season twice. (laughs) 
You were qualified, officially qualified as a nerd. I'd like to start with a clip from one of my favorite scenes. This is an episode from about halfway through the first season. We have the Secretary of State, Taya Leone, has invited an old friend from boarding school over for dinner. He happens to also be the Prince of Bahrain. And he's at the center of a diplomatic crisis that she's trying to solve at work. I think maybe there's a part of her that was hoping to keep politics away from the dinner table and catch up with an old friend, but her family has other plans. Henry, you remember Yusuf? Yusuf. Henry. So good to see you. Please come in. This is my father, Patrick. Ah, uh, Yusuf. Oh, a prince and a secretary of state. If mom could see us now, huh? <laughs> Please sit. Oh, ah. you met Stevie. This is Allison and Jason. Hi. Hi. Oh, ah. my mom here says that you live in a palace, like ah. 200 bedrooms. Ah. How many bathrooms do you have? Well, not enough for my mother-in-law. <laughs> do you have any exotic pets, like an albino lion or something? Really, Allison? Uh, do my children count? <laughs> Slaves, my dad. I'm sorry. It's fine. I'm not so insulated that I'm unfamiliar with this critique. Ah, man of the people. It's too bad your wealth is built on the backs of the poor and oppressed. No wonder that diplomat treats his maid like a slave. Pat, Yusuf uh, is our guest. No, Mom, he's right. How can you be friends with someone who condones human trafficking? Okay, Steve. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. I guess your moral compass has always been broken. Stop picking on Mom. Pick a fight with Mom. She is the you one who can demand What has she decision. ever done to you? Every time okay, you know what you do? You, when you're older, you will understand. What? Enough. Not another word about this for the rest of dinner. Am I clear? That goes for you too, Dad. Yes, sir. So that clip exemplifies something I really love about Madam Secretary, and that's the fact that it's always juggling an international crisis and a house full of teenagers. Mm-hmm. I wonder why, why was it important for you that Madam Secretary show us both of those worlds? Really, honestly, the story is only interesting in full context, not just because politics are more interesting in full context, but woman in a man's world is more interesting in full context. What intrigued me right away was, what is it like to meet with the president of the United States in the morning and the president of the PTA in the evening, you know? <laughs> and, and so that bringing all those worlds together was really the most interesting thing to me. And I also wanted to bring in a third aspect of storytelling, and that was inner office politics, because it, it was based on my belief that, you know, even at the State Department, somebody's upset about their, you know, parking space or their stapler or something. <laughs> yeah, we get a lot of the comedy <laughs> in the show from the hijinks of the staff of the Secretary of State. They're fun. Yes. And then when I got into researching what was involved, because what, one great thing we get to do with the show is we get to show people process. You know, by the time you see what the State Department has done in real life, it's done and it's a headline, you know. Right. But being able to pull the curtain back on the process and show it, I, I just trusted that it would be interesting. And it was, you know. And I sort of felt like, too, one of the things we get to do as sec- with the Secretary of State character is to do these global stories, to pull all these worlds and cultures together and then put them in somebody's living room, you know, with their family. I find all that stuff fun. And and it's a lot of fun <laughs> to watch that play out on the show. Yes, thank you. And that's, it's fun to find it, too. It's fun to find those uh, intersections. So, Barbara, you've also worked on Homeland, Joan of Arcadia, Judging Amy, and you've been writing TV since the early 80s. If we look, there's an episode of Family Ties. Looks like your first credit there on IMDb. <laughs> that was my first, yes. And so, so now as a showrunner, What's your job like and and how has your role in the writer's room changed and what are the most surprising things to you about how different that room, that writer's room feels now than it did back when you were first starting? 
Well, it's so interesting because you're right. As a writer, you keep going, and the better you are, the more you get promoted, and the more you're promoted, you get higher and higher responsibilities. And then if you want to create your own show, you're going to have to run it. And a lot of people learn what that job is while they're doing it. And that was sort of my story. I did work on Chicago Hope, and I ran the writer's room, but not the whole show. So I did have an experience of how to get scripts out on time and things like that. But then I learned how to run my own show on Judging Amy. And that was the moment I realized, oh, this is a whole different skill set. This is like running any company. It's about people management and time management and motivating people and, and figuring out what your mission statement is about all that. And, and I think it's very scary in the beginning because you're not sure, you know, writing is an entirely different thing. There's nothing about the life of a writer that says you're going to be good at running a company, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then I just, I found out that I had a knack for certain aspects of it and I then began to love it. So so I have two jobs now, so <laughs> <how> I see. <laughs> so what does your day really look like? If you're an active production day, you know, what's your calendar like? Are you on set? Are you in the room? Well, I'll speak to this show because it, every show has its own specific circumstances. And ours has the fact that we have production in New York, but the writers and post-production are in L.A. And we're not the only show to do that. But it creates certain challenges, you know, a lot of back and sure. forth for me. Time zones. <laughs> yeah, time zones and travel for me because I'm sort of like three or four weeks here and then a couple of weeks there, back and forth, a lot. So it depends on where I am and it depends on what's happening. I say it's often like triage. You just come in and you see what needs to be done today and you start doing those things. Because basically what we do is this. We make a movie every eight days right. and it can never stop. So once you start production, you do not stop until you're done with the season and you can't get behind and you have to get scripts out on time and all that kind of stuff. So when one show is shooting, there's another one right in front of it prepping, and then there's one right behind it that's going through post-production. And you have to have your finger on the pulse of all of it. That's a lot to keep track of. It is a lot. You know, and immediately I learned, oh, time management is probably the most important part of the job, because everything will derail if you don't have a system and you don't stick to the system. Does your staff meet you at the elevator like the Secretary of State staff <laughs> does so often on the show? <laughs> no, but I'm going to ask them to start. <laughs> Time is money. Come on. You're wasting exactly. that walk. You know, and I, one of the things about running a, a show like running any company is making sure everybody understands what their function is. Because I have, I'll give you my three rules for show running. One is hire people you trust and let them do their jobs. The other is we're all on the side of the show. We don't have another side. If the show wins, we all win. And then everybody's job is the hardest job. So that it's clear that there's no aspect of the show that you can just neglect if somebody's not doing it or upset or, you know, don't have what they need. That's basically it. Those are good rules, I think, for any workplace. <laughs> I think so. Let's talk a little more about the political world of the show. I don't think it glosses over the tough stuff. Like you said, it takes on important international issues and, and dramatic things. But it is a kinder, more collegial world than we see on Scandal or House of Cards. And mm -hmm. honestly, it's kinder and more collegial sometimes than our own real life political process seems to be these days. <laughs> Certainly more. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I've heard you say that when you approach making a TV show, you need to understand why television needs it. And so in this sort of mm -hmm. somewhat crowded political drama landscape, why did we need Madam Secretary? 
Well, I think at the time that I decided to create this, it was incredibly polarized and polarizing time in politics, so much so that it felt like people couldn't even discuss it. And I always enjoy creating a discussion and inviting everybody to the discussion. That's what's interesting. So I felt that it needed it for that reason. Let's remember what it looked like to be able to talk about politics and be interested in them without being angry or upset. So that was a part of it. I also think strong women characters, certainly in positions of power in, in, in Washington or anywhere really, is the chance to give people an image of what that looks like even through popular culture. So it's, you know, it can give people an idea of how that person's journey works and what it looks like. I'm sure you've heard the clip before or are aware of the fact that Hillary Clinton said on The Colbert Show not that long ago that Madam Secretary is one of her favorite shows. And I wonder, mm-hmm. how did it feel to hear from Hillary Clinton that she's a fan of the show? It was thrilling. It's exciting. And so curious as to what is most interesting to her about it, how real it is to her. And, um, of course, I I found out the way everybody found out, which is in the paper, you know, (laughs) or in the article, in the interview. So I'm thrilled to know that. I would love to know more about Mm -hmm. what she thinks about it. But, you know, we already had heard from Secretary Madeleine Albright early on being interested in, in the show. And then we knew pretty much right away that she was a big fan of it. You know, that, and we were able to talk to her and, and get stories, and she helped out a lot. So I find it fascinating when people in that world reach out and, and talk to us about it. Thanks to Barbara Hall for sitting down to talk with us about Madam Secretary. Greta, I think I would like to do a recap podcast of Madam Secretary with Madeleine Albright. I think that's what should happen next. I think that's a really good idea, but I'm pretty sure Hillary Clinton should also participate. She's not busy at all right no, now. She's so got I'm nothing sure going she has on. plenty of time <laughs> to add a podcast to her week. Absolutely. All right. So Madam Secretaries, Madam's <laughs> that's Secretary. That's what you could call it. Madam's Secretary is totally in the name of this podcast. Yeah. And we just all, just me and all of the former Secretaries yeah, of State yeah. who are ladies. I think that sounds really chatting good. Chatting about the show. Madam Secretary. <laughs> This show is produced by us. I'm Trisha Bobita. That's Greta Johnson. Our interns are Maya Cole and Seabird Mallard. Our senior producer is Joe Dassault, and our executive producer is Joel Meyer. You can listen to us wherever you're listening to us because you already are. We would love it if you took the plunge and subscribed on iTunes, Stitcher, NPR One. You know what else we really love is if you give us all of the stars in whatever location you are listening to us. We would like to thank Avienda for the iTunes review. I think you just put a Harry Potter spell on me. Yeah, I think they tricked you spelly, into putting a spell on me. What, what spell is it, though? How do you feel? I don't know. Okay, get back to us. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Instagram and Goodreads are where Greta writes teeny tiny book reviews. We're also on Snapchat because our intern told us we should be. Are we really doing that? I'm on there now. Okay. Nerdette is a production of WBEZ Chicago where there are delightful podcasts for nerds of all stripes. Movie nerds check out film spotting, music nerds. We've got sound opinions, all sorts of good things. You can find out more at WBEZ.org slash podcasts. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. You feeling okay, buddy? Avienda. <laughs> now I reverse the spell and put it back on you. Oh, no. <laughs> Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen 
as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.